from the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. And we are here with a great episode of the Badass Counseling Show Lightning Round ahead. We are in studio. I am joined here in studio by KC over in the booth and Rob next to me. Rob, how are you today? I'm doing great, Sven, and I have some listener mail for you today. Oh, do you? I do. Here it is. Hi, Sven. I just wanted to send you a quick note telling you thank you. I am dealing with a meth problem and I am a faithful listener to your podcast and I even have your Love Cup book. You have been an inspiration to me so much that I finally checked myself in to a wonderful women's treatment, and now I get a chance to work through my issues that have been keeping me sick. Please, for me and everyone else that listens to you, keep up the awesome work. You are amazing. Oh, wow. Couldn't have said it better myself, my friend. Wow. Congratulations. That's us. That's that's not just me, Rob. That's all your hard work. You put in so many hours on this show, and... Casey on the creative and the business side and you with all the technical and it's just, it's the teamwork. Wow. How does it feel to uh, get that, Rob, uh, Rob, when that came in? I was so happy to see that. Made my day. Wow. That's such a lovely thing. Love to see people finding their own second chance and going into it and deciding to heal and doing the hard, ugly work. That's such a beautiful story. And wherever you are checking in from, Listening to the show from St. Louis to St. Bart's, San Luis Obispo to San Agata, Italy, from Perth to the Permian Basin, from the White Earth Reservation to the Onondaga Nation Territory of the First Peoples, or anyone enjoying a music festival this summer or in the Southern Hemisphere this winter, any music festivals, if you are enjoying one now or you have or you're going to, may the music rock your soul. So we're here. We're here for a lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show, and we are tuning in, and we're getting after it right now. First question is from Crystal. How do you convince yourself to leave when you know you should? I'm feeling lost. I'm worried about his feelings. How do you convince yourself to leave? If you're having to convince yourself, you're not ready, because convincing yourself is like forcing it. And I'm not really a believer in trying to force any sort of action. Why? Because it means you're not ready. Because it means there's a high likelihood it's not going to stick. The way you get yourself ready or the way you sort of is to dive further into it. It's to get into those feelings. What am I really feeling right now? And the more you have the courage to actually bring up those feelings and to address your frustration and all of your pain and sadness, the more those feelings will come up and come out of you, the more clarity you will have of purpose and the more strength you will have. And what's fascinating, you said, you're feeling lost. I'm worried about his feelings. Yeah, and isn't that interesting that you're so programmed to believe you need to be as concerned or more pro, uh, concerned about his feelings when you're considering leaving. You say, you know you should, but you're concerned about his feelings. That's how deep your programming runs that you're conditioned, even when you know you have to do something to save yourself, you're conditioned to only worry about the other person or to worry about their stuff more. So your real issue is the fear of, gee, that will mean I'm a bad person if I actually worry about my feelings. So you gotta be addressing your fears of being a bad person, of, oh, supposedly this makes you selfish, that you're taking your feelings as in this event as more important than someone who has clearly wronged you. Otherwise, obviously you wouldn't be leaving. So you need to be going into 
and talking about with your therapist or with your best friend or in your own personal journaling, writing letters to him that you don't send and even saying, I'm so sorry to hurt you and, uh, you know, but I have to do this to save myself, but fuck you also for making the relationship such that I have to leave. I didn't want to, you know, leave or whatever, but flushing out all your feelings and the more you do that, the greater clarity you will have. But especially at some point, you're going to need to go into where the hell you got that conditioning that someone else's feelings have the power to short circuit you from doing something that you need to do to save yourself. Next question. All right. (laughs) I have a triggering boomer mother-in-law. All right. How do I work through my triggers and have a good relationship with her? All right. You've just explicitly stated that you want a good relationship with her. My question would be, why do you want a good relationship with her? Presumably, it's because you're married to her son and you want to get along for peace in the family. Um, And you say she is triggering. Um, And how do you work through your triggers? Okay. First of all, she is not... She is the trigger, but she's not what's being triggered. And so what you have to identify inside of yourself, the dynamite, it's like she's setting flame to the fuse of this dynamite inside of you. She's the trigger. She's the flame. She's the match. And so you have to look inside and say, what the hell is being triggered inside of me? What are the feelings I'm feeling when she does X, Y, or Z, or when she doesn't do A, B, or C? What is it that I'm feeling and where the hell is the origin of that feeling? What My anger, my hurt, my discontent with her, I'm taking it out on her, but is it really her or is it this stuff from back here? And you're saying, you're admitting it's something from back there. Well, now the, uh, the onus is on you to identify what that is from back there, where the hell it came from, how it made you feel, and then to purge those feelings and those memories, well, not the memories, but the feelings attached to those memories. You have to purge those out of you. Otherwise, you're just walking around with dynamite inside of you, and it's not going to go away just because you know maybe she goes away right? When she's not going away, because you're going to see her at family events or whatever. So you can fracture the relationship of you and your husband with her mother and create this rift in a family, which is a tale as old as time, right? Mother-in-laws, daughter-in-laws, you know, son-in-law, father-in-law. You can do that, or you can look at what the real origins are of your pain and begin to flush all of that out. And then you're capable on your side of the equation of arriving to the equation with your mother-in-law as a person who has flushed out their own uh, things that are being triggered. Now, if she hasn't, and if she's just being a jerk, well, now we're getting into a separate issue. But if if your beef with her is because she's causing you to feel things from your own past, well, that's on you. Does that make sense? All right, next question. How do I get over my abusive ex-husband who was also abusive to my daughter, telling her that I'm a psycho and that he's the only parent that will ever really love her? Um, I've since talked to her and assured my daughter that it isn't true, of course. Uh, It isn't, of course, true, but she heard this repeatedly from a young age and has really messed her up. She's in therapy, as am I. She is on medication as well. I'm so angry. And your initial question was, how do I get over my abusive ex-husband, who was also abusive to my daughter? get over, you didn't say, how do I get past my anger so that I can have peace inside of myself? You said, how can I get over my ex? Usually when we use the lang- that sort of language, how do I get over my ex? It says, I'm still, I still have feelings of love for my ex. 
How do I get over it? Oh, you know, Joey jilted me, and gosh, I just can't get over him. I miss him so much. Or, man, Susie left me after she met that other guy. I just can't get over her, man. She was so great. So you're saying, how do I get over an abusive ex who was abusive to my daughter, told her I'm a psycho, did all this bad crap, and you can't get over him? That implies, I hear you saying that you have your feelings of love for him and longing for him are so strong that in some ways or at certain times, it overrides the fact that he was abusive to you and towards your daughter. Now, what that really says to me is, sure, maybe it's the love, but what that tells to me, if you and I were in session, if you were a client of mine or we're just having beers at a bar and talking about this, what that says to me is that fear, that there is something inside of you that you are afraid of, that you are clinging to someone, can't get over someone, because you're clinging in fear, fear of being alone, fear that I won't have someone, fear that um, he's going to go be with someone else and that would hurt my heart too much? Or is it you can't get over all of your rage at him and all of your pain? Now, that would seem to make more sense, wouldn't you think, Rob? Sounds right to me. Yeah. It's a tough one. But it is, when you use language like get over, because usually you'd say it's how do I get over my anger, get past, but to just say get over, it seems to imply the love. Um, in the case of if it's love that you, you're feeling you can't get over, I guarantee it's fear underneath there. Fear of letting go of him, fear of being alone, fear of looking like the bad guy um, or something. But you're holding on, if you're holding on to an abusive person, it's, you're terrified. And uh, that's that. But... If it's, uh, how do I get over all the anger? Well, you have to flush all that out. You have to keep bringing that up. Write him letters saying, you fucking dick, and I fucking hate you, et cetera, et cetera, and keep flushing and keep flushing. The only way we get rid of feelings is to keep flushing them, not by packing them down. All right, next question. Uh, and that sort of dovetails into this next question from Kayla. How do you get to the root of your anxiety when you're getting into new romantic relationships? Well, my first question to be would be to you, what are you most afraid of? Anxiety is fear. It's They are almost completely interchangeable. One is a derivative of the other. Anxiety is basically, in anticipation, afraid of something bad happening, afraid of pain happening. And so what I would want to know is, you ask, how do you get to the root of your anxiety when getting into new romantic relationships? I would want to ask you the question, well, what are you most afraid of? Above all else, what is your single greatest fear? And I'm going to take a stab at it, that your single greatest fear, because it's pretty universal, and it may not be this, but uh, your fear is that if I open up and show who I really am, that this person may not like me, right? I mean, isn't that really one of the universal fears that we all fear? We all want to be seen and accepted for who we all really are, but, you know, because if I show you who I really am and you stay, that's powerful, I'm wantable, I'm lovable, wow, I matter. I showed more and more of who I really am and you stayed, you wanted it. That's what we all seek. One of the things of life is to have that, right? I mean, this goes back to the movie Avatar, right? Where they never say, I love you in that movie, they say, I see you. I see who you really are and I stay and we all want that, but the hitch in that equation that really kind of fucks it up. <laughs> Is it in order for you to show or see who I really am, I have to show you who I really am. And that's the scary part. Why? Because you may not like it. And that's the risk. So I'm willing to bet, Kayla, to your question, how do you get to the root of your anxiety when getting into new romantic relationships? You identify what your single greatest fear is. Fear of being alone. 
fear of this person not liking me, fear of them hurting me somehow, walking away, the rejection, the abandonment. Okay, and then you ask yourself, you begin to ask yourself questions like, what's the earliest recollection I have in my life of being abandoned uh, or being rejected? Well, it was when those boys, you know, the boys I dated in high school rejected me. Okay, fair. So start journaling about those feelings. But then I would ask you the question, well, why did that why did that hit you so powerfully? And none of us like rejection, you know, when you're in senior high or when you're in elementary school or when you're in your 50s. Nobody likes rejection, okay? And But then it's going into, were there other memories of feeling rejected? And what's fascinating is that those feelings of feeling rejected back in high school, let's say, landed so hard, sometimes they land harder if we don't have love in our love cup. See, if I've been getting love into my love cup, I have a living, breathing counter message in my life and inside of me that says, I have worth, I am good. So when someone rejects me, yes, it hurts, and I grieve that, but there's still this foundational love of self. But if you didn't get that foundational love of self at 2, 4, 12, 14, then when someone rejects you, it hits even harder because it lands in a love cup that's full of crud that have the opposite message, I'm not lovable. And so that someone rejecting me becomes the trigger that, as we were talking about just a few minutes ago, that it, it lights the match to the dynamite of my what's being triggered. And that is, see, I'm unlovable, I'm unwanted, uh, or whatever it might be. Next question. Okay, this is great. This is actually great. We've, I don't think we've had this one on in quite some time. Joe asked a question. I was in a car accident that has forced me to be temporarily disabled in a wheelchair temporarily disabled in a wheelchair. How do I eliminate the memory of the trauma slash accident playing constantly in my head? Okay, the reason we relive memories, one of the reasons we often relive a memory and replay it and replay it, and sometimes even act it out. I see this when I, I'm working with clients who are dealing with sexual memories, perhaps it was being cheated on, or even when something bad was done to them that was some sort of sexual abuse they will sometimes live that out in their adult life. But the brain is replaying it, trying to make sense of it. The brain is replaying it to decharge it, to familiarize myself with it, that the more I replay it and grow used to it, the less pain it causes is the theory. The brain is naturally trying to heal itself. One of the things that we did, um, I was a trauma counselor for an airline and I would uh, work specifically with uh, staff, uh, pilots, flight attendants, but also administrative staff, um, specifically regarding trauma that might be happening, whether it's happening in the cockpit or in the plane, or whether it's happening in one of our employees' lives, somebody loses a brother, or um, we discover there's going to be a such and such strike and the anxiety that that strikes into people. So I was sort of the, uh, you know, I was a trauma counselor for this airline. And, um, and also on the accident response team and you know the uh, critical incident response team and so forth. And one of the things that we do that I do when addressing trauma, when someone's gone through a traumatic incident, let's say a wind shear and you know, loss of significant loss of elevation in a very short amount of time, is I begin by simply you know, talking with them and you know, getting comfortable, but then I ask them to tell me what happened. So I'm, I'm asking them to replay the facts 
okay? And I do this with my clients. I tell all my clients, I'm gonna ask you fact questions, then a little deeper, I'm gonna ask you story questions, then a little deeper, I'm gonna ask you the whys, wherefores, and what was going on inside of you questions. And it's the same way with you know trauma counseling, and there are other forms of trauma counseling, but the one I use is just, tell me what happened. Just tell me what happened and give me the facts and then tell me the story of what, what was going on around you and so on and so forth. And then it's what was going on inside of you? What was the scariest part? What was the hardest part? What's the hardest part about talking about it right now? And there's never any pressure. If they don't want to do it, I, you know, I, I don't push them in that moment. Um, and then we stay down there. We stay down there until there, there's a purging. There's a purging. There's putting words to it. There's a reliving of it. And the feelings that come with it, the, there can be shaking. There can be laughing. There can be crying. There can be yawning. There can be stretching. They're having physical responses to the emotional memory, right? And then when the time comes, I'll bring them back up and I'll say, okay, now tell me the story again and then we'll come back all the way out of it. So we're going down in stages and coming back up in stages. Well, that's what your brain is doing, Joe, when you ask this question. Joe asked the question and I wanna replay it for anyone. And Joe asked the question, I was in a car accident that has forced me to be temporarily disabled in a wheelchair. How do I eliminate the memory of the trauma slash accident? Playing constantly in my head. The way you eliminate it is the same way you get over a lover. You get over a lover by not trying to get over the lover. You eliminate a memory, a traumatic memory, by not trying to sort of run past it. I know the goal is to eliminate it. I get that. And that is the eventuality. But so often we focus on, oh, I got to forget it. I want to get past this. I want to get past this. But the truth is, in the words of the great poet, Rumi, the cure for the pain is the pain. And so what that means is part of the reason your brain keeps replaying it is, a, like I said, the main reason is your brain is trying to come to terms that it's trying to decharge it by normalizing it, by incorporating it into your life story. And we can facilitate that process by staying in it rather than trying to get past it. And so what I recommend is, yes, the talking out, but I recommend, as you all heard me say 2 million billion times, Write out your story, Joe. Write it out on paper and pen, okay? You can do it in your computer, type it, but I'm a paper and pen guy because that's gonna force you to stay in the memory. It's not just up here, okay? And I think of the brain when things, when people call themselves overthinkers or procrastinators and, you know, or, um, you know, thinking about things you don't wanna do or thinking about things you gotta do or what might happen. It's like clothes tumbling around in a dryer, a demon-possessed dryer, Imagine a demon-possessed clothes dryer that your favorite sweater is in there and you were just going to put it in for a few minutes just to sort of firm it back up. You know how your sleeves or your wrists or your collar will firm back up a little bit if you drop a sweater or a piece of clothing in the dryer just for a little bit with a wet rag. And you put it in there, but then the demon-possessed dryer closed that... And it says, I've got your sweater now. And it turns and it turns and it turns. And you're screaming and you go to unplug the demon-possessed dryer, but it doesn't stop. And it's turning and it's turning and it's turning. And you know that every moment that goes by, your favorite sweater is going to be destroyed, but it just keeps going. You can't get the fucking clothes out of the dryer. That's what's going on in your head, Joe. Your brain, your soul is longing to get these out. But as long as these clothes, as long as this memory keeps spinning, it's staying inside of you, you are experiencing it. Once we put it out of us, once we write it out, I'm not experiencing it anymore. Now I'm seeing it. I'm not in the experience. I'm watching the experience. As you guys know, I have all new clients for, uh, with me write an autobiography. 
and I only make the rarest of exception. Everyone has to write an autobiography and I read it before uh, our first session and not only read it, I study it, I mark it up. I usually spend two, anywhere between two and four hours with an autobiography and I don't charge for that. It's an act of good faith on my part. Okay. And what's fascinating is one of the first questions I will usually ask a client is what was it like writing the autobiography? And they're like, oh my God, Sven, it was so scary. I didn't want to do it. I put it off or they'll say it was fucking cathartic, man. I've never written that stuff to anybody. It just felt good to say it. Or some people will say, oh my God, I saw what the hell my life has been. Or they'll have some sort of epiphany, right? When we get something out of us, we're reading the book. We're not actually in the book. When I'm reading the story, uh, you know, I've read a bunch of biographies and one of my favorite is of uh, Ulysses S. Grant, you know, American war general in the Civil War. And I'm reading, yes, I'm experiencing it up here, but it's on the paper. I'm seeing it. There is a detachment from the story versus I'm not actually a Civil War soldier, okay? So it's the same way, taking it out of your head. So Joe, if you want to decharge this memory, which is what your soul is trying to do, to start writing it out, well, what happened? And then go a little deeper. How did it feel? God, it was so fucking scary. And da, 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 well, why was it scary? Ask yourself that question. Well, why? And what am I feeling right now? I'm feeling a knot in my chest. You're writing all this down. You're writing everything down, how you feel. And then this memory and, and how scared I was when I went to the doctor and they weren't sure about my legs and all of it. Keep flushing it. And then tomorrow when you wake up and your brain starts going, start writing again. Keep flushing and flushing and flushing. And I guarantee you, you will fully decharge that memory of that accident. You will decharge it from the emotion. You will strip it of the emotion and then it doesn't have its power. And then it will fade as a memory rather than an emotionally charged memory. More to come in a minute. But first, a short break. Here's a conversation I recently had with my producer, KC. So KC, you've been in this business a long time. Why do you work on my show? It's because we're helping people change their lives. Listen to some of the feedback we get. Finding that podcast changed my life, my career, and the way I parent my son. This man basically broke my generational trauma. Or this one. I heard one of your podcasts last week, and it was talking about how a girl was always very reactive when she was talking to her mom. And then it was because she's constantly listening to all the negative things her mom said, and that became her own inner voice. I shared that with my therapist, and when I say I was in tears, I was bawling. I've only ever brought my mom up in therapy like two or three times, and today was a major breakthrough. So thank you so much, Sven. You're amazing. Well, Casey, I love having you on the show, and you're amazing what you bring to the team. And it's cool to think that we're touching people's lives, and thanks for what you put into it. I really believe in this show. People should definitely subscribe and download it. It'll change your life. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. And we are right back with a great episode of the lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show. And if you want more resources for your own healing, please feel free to go to badasscounseling.com. Uh, my books are there. My newest book will be coming out soon. It's called Badass Wisdom, and it is a 366, including leap year, 66-day daily kick-ass fucking, you know, punch you in the gut uh, 
daily meditational with deep questions and an anecdote, a great quote, um, a meditational like you've really never had before. All right, here we go. Next question. What does it mean to quote unquote, be yourself? You know, that's a great question. That really cuts to the heart of it. Um, Rob, I'm going to answer this and then I want to hear your answer. No, actually, I want to hear your answer first. As a, as a lay person, uh, what does it mean to, to you to be yourself? Well, to be fearless in what you feel about yourself and to feel okay in expressing it to the world, mm. not have second thoughts about it. Um, I, I think that's the key to it is, is to not have any fear to, to show who you really are. I love that. I love that. And the follow-up to that is, because I get asked this a lot, people ask, well, Sven, how do you know if it's my real self or if it's like all my trauma or my fears or my anxieties or something else? Because I feel sometimes I'm not sure who I am. I have other sort of voices in my head, so to speak. Um, you got a thought on that one, Rob? Oh, I get scared when people say they get hearing voices, but right. <laughs> we're not talking. You about know what that. I mean, Rob. I think we all feel like imposters at one time or another, but uh, you know that's situational, and you have to have uh, in, in your gut your feeling of, of who you really are, and again, you let that out, right? And and see, this is just it. Um, nothing will corrupt your living of your authentic self more than the messages you got about yourself in your childhood and the fears of pain in the present and moving forward. And so this is why I'm always telling you guys, you have to go back into your past to determine. People say, oh, the past is a past, get over it. It's not even about getting over it, it's about learning from it. Because the truth is you were imprinted with messages. Even good parents make mistakes. We all make mistakes in parenting. And even good parents imprint us with messages about ourselves that we are then either compensating for or directly uh, making decisions from whether it's regarding love, career, self-worth, and that affects everything. And so the more you get out those messages and the pain and the fears, the more you do that, the more you, are, you, you can feel it. You literally can feel yourself when you're acting from a place that just feels centered inside. You know it's your authentic self versus the anxiety that comes with it. And that really is one of the simplest metrics. Do you want to know one of the simplest metrics to know whether or not it's coming from authentic self or from fears or some derivative self of what you've been taught about yourself? Simply this, does it come from a place of anxiety and does it produce anxiety? If it produces calm or genuine exuberance, it's you. Calm slash relief or exuberance, it's you. If it creates anxiety, it's not you. Now, there, you know, you may feel a, a path that you're passionate about and, geez, I'm scared, but I know this is the path I want to go. I'm excited too. You know, it's, it's the entrepreneur's mentality. It's the person who wants to be a musician and they, they just know this is what I'm going to do with my life. This is what I want. I'm scared as hell because I don't know how I'm going to do it. But you feel really good afterwards. Yeah, and you even feel good doing the hard work because it's like I know this is what I want for my life, you know? Um, and I know this is what I want, and I'm willing to endure it. And the, and the joy of building something, even when it's scary, that's a, that's a powerful thing. Um, all right, here we go. What's your opinion on the saying, happiness is a choice? <laughs> uh, yes and no. Uh, no, because by definition, happiness, do you know what the word of happy is? Hap. 
Do you know that they actually don't fully know the origins of the word hap? Uh, so we have the words happiness, we have happenstance, something that just happens. We have hapless, right? What's a hapless person? Someone who really has no luck, just a bumbling sort of person, right? Um, but hap is this notion of luck. And so that means that happiness is largely luck. Do you know that you can take the exact same vacation two years in a row? And one, the first year, it's like, oh, I was so happy. It was wonderful. St. Bart's is fantastic. I love it, blah, 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 blah. And you can go back and do the exact same vacation the next year and, and have a horrible experience or have a really quite mediocre experience. Well, wait a minute. I thought I can control happiness. You can't. You can't always. It is to some degree based on luck. You can control joy more. It's the difference, the way I look at it, is the difference between training for a marathon versus crossing the finish line. You have the euphoria, you have, or, you know, foreplay versus orgasm and afterglow. Orgasm is that high, right? And the afterglow is that high. But what's foreplay? It's that building. It's that crescendo. If you're training for a marathon, you're building something. Do you every day get joy out of going out of the house at five in the morning to run fucking eight miles? No. No, it's not fun every day. The joy is more of an overarching joy that I know I'm building something. I want this, even though it sucks and it's fucking frigid cold in the winter and I can see my breath and the snow is freezing on my eyelids as it used to when I was a kid running in Minnesota during wrestling season. No, but I'm building something and there's joy that comes from that. But the upside or the yes of happiness is a choice is it's a choice insofar as is if you get out all the pain, all the unhappy, all the bullshit, all the everything out of you, you will naturally become lighter. You will have more spontaneous energy. You will naturally be happier because what causes unhappiness is the crud inside. It's the feeling, it's the affect, it's the response to life going on around you. And people say, well, you can control that. The fuck you can. You can stuff those feelings down, but that's not controlling it because all that pain and shit that you stuff down, it'll bite you in the ass. And you're gonna be spending energy stuffing that down. And eventually the pain that you stuff into the depths of your soul, eventually your soul will grind your life to a halt no matter how powerful you think your will is. Now, Rob, you're giggling over here. What are you thinking or wanting to say? Uh, it's As an aside, uh, one of my apartment mates in college, his name was Hap. Hap? Yeah, his name was Hap. And uh, Hap, uh, because of him, the apartment was subject to a very serious drug bust in the year 1970, which in that particular year, that sort of thing, even though it was just marijuana, that was serious. I was smart enough to not be home at the time. I didn't know he was doing that stuff. Really, I didn't do it. Uh -huh. But it did not make me happy, <laughs> just so you know. A lovely story of Hap and Happy. Back in the day when people had... Names like Hap. Do you think that was his birth name? Uh, no, I th it was a nickname. I think his name was Harris. Interesting. Yeah. How do you think he picked up Hap? Hap Harris. I don't know. He di didn't make me happy. <laughs> we had a kid in school growing up, and his nickname was Huppy. We'd call him Hup or Huppy, but uh, Hap. That is an old, now that you mention that, there are like some old movies that there, there would be a Hap in the movie. I think that name has been used. Yeah. Generally, I think you're right. Generally a nickname. Yeah, that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. All right, guys, um, what have you got for me? I just dated myself. I just realized that. By the Hap story? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's like a World War II. Oh, Hap, you know, joined us uh, for beers afterwards. I'm going to give this one a shot, you guys. So stay with me here. I'm going to try to scoot through it. Laura asked a question. I had had enough bullshit for the last 12 years, and I keep allowing him back in my life. 
there was a pretty major event that pretty much made our whole relationship a lie. He was having an affair, emotional affair with a girl I didn't even know existed. She reached out to me and told me about the conversations they have had. She knew so many things about our relationship and I felt so betrayed and I ended it once and for all. The problem is he doesn't quite. He just doesn't stop trying to explain and apologize then say he has depression depression and anxiety and he loves me so much and can't lose me. He started counseling this week and says he wants to change. He doesn't understand boundaries. It's breaking me down. I guess I'm asking because of our long history, is this worth hanging in there? Am I once again being the doormat and giver? Um, first of all, don't beat yourself up for feeling all the feelings, the feelings of love in particular, that when you hold on and you trust someone and you're in love, those are powerful feelings and they're real. They're real and that's okay. And don't deny yourself the rage and the anger and the anxiety and the betrayal. And you got to feel all those feelings and allow all those feelings, as you guys hear me say all the time. Uh, but there was pretty much a major event that much, pretty much made our whole relationship a lie. He was having an emotional affair with a girl. And you're wondering, you ask the question, you know, he's in therapy and he's always apologizing and he says he's depressed and anxious and he loves me so much. And he even started counseling this week and says he wants to change. And you ask, um, you know, is it worth it? Should I stay in it? And what I'm saying is the mere fact that this, he's only now trying to get counseling tells me that this event happened very, very recently. Either that or what the fuck that he's only now getting counseling. But what's fascinating about it, so let's say it happened in the last month or three months, let's just say, all right? And he's, it can be hard to find a therapist. I get that. Um, you know, in the U.S., heck, up in Canada, you know, it's really hard up there to get a therapist. I tell me a lot. A lot of clients tell me that when they come to me. But he's only getting counseling now, and you're debating whether or not to keep trying. And he's saying he wants counseling, and he's in depression and anxiety. Okay, he hasn't actually done anything yet. You said he started counseling this week, so he's had one counseling appointment, and you are considering going back to someone who, in your own words, did something that made the whole relationship a lie. So he destroyed the foundation. He's cheating on you, 14-year, 12-year relationship, and you're considering going back because he had one counseling session. And all of his entreaties, all of his pleading and his bleating. Do you know what bleating is? Sheep bleat. Right? That's what he's, he's bleating. It's like, shut the fuck up, dude. Honestly, I mean, you asked me for a straight answer. Laura, I'm giving you a straight answer. He hasn't done anything. And you're thinking about going back on someone who destroyed a 12-year relationship. He blew up the foundation of that relationship. The foundation of the relationship is trust. It's not love. I mean, yeah, it's love, but it's trust. The bricks are the trust. Love's the mortar, sure. And you're thinking about going back because he's saying, I'm so depressed. Well, that feels nice. Christ, why weren't you saying that, you know, six months ago? Why weren't you saying that nine years ago? You know, that you're depressed or you, the thought of losing me, you know, kills you and all this stuff. And, he, and what's fascinating is he's doing all this now. He's putting all this energy into you now, which says that he heard you all those times back then when you said, I, I want more energy. I want you to invest. I want you to get counseling. I want you to look at your shit. I'm sure you said some of this stuff before. This cheating didn't come out of nowhere. He's probably been distant or whatever in the past, but only now he's changing, which says he heard you before, but didn't change then. So he heard your complaints, but he didn't change then. Why? He didn't have to. But now you have the power, don't you? 
and you're considering leaving. And the only reason he's stepping up to the plate is why? Because his love source, if he has a love cup and you're the love source, his love source is now going to walk away and he has to get you back. So he will bleat and bleed and oh, cry and be depressed and anxious and I'll even go to a counseling and I'll promise to go to counseling forever, anything to take you back, but he hasn't actually done anything. So you are willing to go against all the breach of trust and betrayal because of a promise, a promise. Well, we already know his word is shit, but you're willing to go back on a mere promise without proof. Now, it feels good to know you're wanted, and the idea of going back to that state is very appealing, but the truth is you won't be able to trust him for a long time. That's usually what happens. I mean, there could be an odd twist of events, but usually uh, exploding a relationship um, causes distrust for a long time. But you're not ready to go back. You want to know why? Because you you are not in a position yet where you can defend yourself. And the truth is you're going to have to defend yourself and hold your boundaries the moment he begins to sway back to from his you know great things, all the great things he's going to do, and starts potentially falling back into old patterns. You're going to have to catch him and say, nope, you can't do this. You're going to have to do it every single time because it's very easy to slide back into those old patterns and you have to hold him accountable, which means you have to have changed. Have you changed? Have you changed that you're ready to hold him accountable at every turn? Have you done the work on you so that you can protect you because clearly he ain't going to protect you. He cannot be trusted to protect you anymore, not for a good long time. Good intentions don't mean shit. They really don't when you have just blown up a relationship. And if you go back, it's highly likely that at some point, if he hasn't addressed the core beliefs that are driving his surface behaviors, then any change in surface behaviors will not stick. Will not stick. Okay, here we go. Katie asked the question, my ex is an extreme taker. I had, and as most of you know that follow me, and for those of you that don't, uh, extreme taker is my phrase for what most people call narcissist. I don't like to use that phrase. I am not a psychologist. Um, I did study the classics and speak multiple forms of Greek uh, and Latin. So technically I know the origins, the real origins of the term narcissist, and I understand all the me metaphor uh, meanings in it, but I prefer to use the phrase extreme taker because I think it's more graphic and tells the story better of narcissists. Anyway, X is an extreme taker. I adopted his daughter, who is now 17, who is just like him. Should I stay or go no contact? I assume you mean with her. Um, the bottom line is this. I adopted his daughter, who's 17 now, and she's just like him. Should I stay or go no contact? If you stay, do you have the ability to protect yourself? Do you have the ability to not be an extreme giver to her extreme taker? Do you have the ability to set and hold boundaries even when she's kicking and screaming or calling you a stupid bitch or whatever? Do you have the ability to defend yourself? Because if you don't, or if you just don't want to expend the energy to deal with an extreme taker, I'd go no contact. And I would tell her, listen, kid, you're acting in ways that don't feel good to me. I would love to have a relationship with you if you would act in ways that are respectful of me. Well, fuck you, I don't have to do that. Okay, thank you. You've just shown me who you are. When you are ready to have more of an adult relationship or a respectful relationship, I would love to have a relationship with you. Till then, I have to pull back from you. 
but then you have to hold that boundary. Don't let him tug on your heartstrings. Don't let her tug on your heartstrings. Don't let your own sense of guilt, which is coming from somewhere in your past, tug on your heartstrings. You have every right, nay, you have every responsibility to protect your own sacredness and your own uh, reasonable expectation of, of respect and feel good in life, right? You adopted her, but she has every responsibility. And if, and if someone gets to that state, probably no one's holding them accountable especially at 17. And you've gotta be willing to stand up, otherwise her extreme taking will expand. And if it does expand, it's gonna expand around you, all right? So you're going to have to begin to change yourself. So I am, I'm in favor of protecting your boundaries, but you gotta be able to hold those boundaries too. All right, can you get through to someone who shuts down whenever met with your emotions about their wrongdoing? Um, can you get through? Yes, it is possible, but it's not in the way you might think. Your Ramon is basically expressing that every time I express my emotions about their wrongdoings, they shut down. They don't want to talk about it. They close off. Right. Of course they don't. They don't want to own it. In all likelihood, their own love cup is full of so much pain from their own story, from their own years, that they can't handle any criticism of them. Now, that sort of behavior only lasts in a relationship when it is allowed. For those of you that are just beginning a relationship or just dating and someone shuts down or isn't interested in hearing your feelings or being accountable to how they've hurt you, you have to catch that when it's small. You have to catch it right away and you have to either A, stand up and say, no, you need to own this or you need to walk away because if they don't own it now, they're not gonna own it yesterday. They're not gonna fucking magically meet Jesus and fucking all of a sudden they become a person who listens to what they've done wrong. I'm all for meeting Jesus or Krishna or whomever. But the bottom line is the notion that in this relationship, that if I allow them to commit wrongdoings against me and um, and I don't hold them accountable, the notion that they're magically gonna stop, they're not gonna magically fucking stop. It's gonna get bigger. Small things get bigger. All right, so there, you have to understand and stay with me here, all right? Don't jump to shit. When somebody does something once, they're not, technically they're not acting narcissistically. In the beginning of a relationship, if somebody does something once, for me as the receiver of someone, let's say, not accepting their wrongdoing, they're not acting narcissistically yet. They've simply done something that hurt me. If they do it twice, now we've got a beginning of a pattern of narcissistic behavior or of hurtful behavior. It becomes narcissistic in my life to me. It becomes an extreme taker to me when I allow it. Because the first time it's just somebody who's hurt my feelings. There's no pattern yet to indicate something bigger. All there is is one event. But if I allow it a second time, if I allow it a third time, now I am allowing something and that is going to expand because I am not eliminating it. I have a responsibility to my boundaries. I have a responsibility to my own soul that when things don't feel good, I have a responsibility to shut them down because if you don't do it when it's small, it gets infinitely harder when it gets bigger. When that pattern gets established, gets okayed in the beginning, it gets infinitely harder one year, two years, 20 years down the road to retrain that person. It's all but impossible. That's why when you're dating, if you are ignoring red flags, those red flags will turn into patterns. I guarantee it. 
If you're not able to see red flags, you're in for a world of shit later. That's why we do our work before we start dating. Even if you're 40 or 60, time to do the work. All right, next question. M asked the question, my son still won't talk to me after I apologized 10 days ago. Any suggestion? All right, I have a couple of answers uh, on that. If you apologize 10 days ago, it depends on the level of the offense, but I always tell people that the goal of the apology, of a real apology, of real contrition and uh, apology, confession uh, to the other person, I hurt you and I'm sorry, the goal is to alleviate their pain. It's to honor them. Yes, it also alleviates my pain because I am admitting it, I'm getting it off my chest, I am owning it. It feels heavy, but there's also a sense of lightness that comes from owning something and doing the right thing. But the real goal is I hurt you and I have a responsibility to you to own what I did and that has largely has an effect of relieving your pain. The goal of the apology is to relieve the other person's pain. Secondarily or tertiary goal is to reestablish a relationship if both parties want that. Now, what you're saying is, I have owned it, but at this stage of the game, 10 days later, my son does not want to reestablish the breach that was created by my actions or inactions, right? And that's your son's prerogative. He doesn't have to. He doesn't ever have to. He has no obligation to restore a breach in a relationship. It's strictly optional, which is the beauty of a great relationship, that you know the person is doing it not because they're expected to. They're forgiving not because they have to. They're restoring a relationship not because you're shooting them to, but because it's optional. So they are choosing you of their own free will. Now, that's a beautiful fucking relationship. However, all of that being said, the follow-up question I would ask you if we were in counseling to cover your blind spots is I would ask you the question, is this a pattern of behavior of stringing out anger? I had a girlfriend that I offended once. We had been dating for quite some time. And uh, she was uh, gone and on business a lot, uh, traveled for her business. And uh, we were on the phone once. And uh, she said, uh, you know, gosh, I really need to see you. I need to see you. And I said, I don't need to see you. Like, it, like it's like an addiction or something. I just really, really, really want to see you. And she took grievous offense at that. And she literally did not talk to me for 30 days, even though I apologized. And I was really apologizing because I knew I had hurt her, even though my intent was to tell her that this is, I, I want you. This is volitional. This is of choice. And I was trying to say something nice, and um, and then I apologized for it, but she just wanted to be angry. And about 10, uh, about 15 or 20 days in, I realized, you know what? Whatever crime I committed, the punishment has far outweighed the crime. This is like a $500 punishment for a $5, a $50 crime. There's no fucking way that what I did was that fucking grievous. She knows I love her, and I prove it in thought, word, and deed. So this was her shit. So in getting back to your son, you said, my son won't, still won't talk to me after I apologized 10 days ago. Any of your suggestions? Well, I went through the fact that he doesn't have to technically, but on the other hand, especially if your son is a minor and he's engaging this behavior, then it could possibly be that he is manipulating guilt and anger as a way to make you feel pain. And that kid needs to be in therapy because those are deeper issues and I can go into them, but I want to get on to one or two more questions before we call it quits for today. And just out of curiosity, M, the question you want to ask yourself is, you know, do you still feel guilty? 
after apologizing. Uh, because if you do, it's possible that he is he making you feel guilt or do you still feel guilt and have you expressed the fullness of what you really feel to your son or are you somehow protecting yourself, defending, deflecting, dodging, or denying? All right, here we go. How do I address the cognitive distortion of, quote, I am the common denominator, therefore I'm the reason I am not safe, end quote. First of all, there are things called victims that if someone gets mugged multiple times or gets hurt multiple times, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are at fault, does it, right? It's random. Here's the thing, though. If I keep choosing, uh, let's say, bad relationships, okay, well, I'm the one common denominator, so I must be the problem. No. Very often that, in, in fact, we taped an episode of uh, the Badass Counseling Show, a counseling episode, and we had this happen with one of the guests on the show. And she said, I keep having these bad relationships, and they're all sort of similar in X, Y, and Z ways. And what we did was we drilled down, drilled down, drilled down. And what we discovered is that she had been conditioned to believe from a very young age, her mother left all of the time and her mother was gone all the time. And the father, they had already divorced, but the mom who had taken custody of the kids, mom was gone all the time. She was party girl. Um, I think the, the guest had a even more graphic term for the mom, um, but the child, so the child is home alone or, or with siblings very, very often at very young ages. And at one point, the mom, before the mom and the dad divorced, the mom had left for weeks, just left. Are you capable of understanding? And I know many of you have had similar experiences, so I know you are. But for those of you who aren't, it is profoundly scary for a child to see their parent leave. It's unsettling. It's scary. You feel alone. You're, you're, the profound sense of loss. Your life stops. It goes black. You're so sad. It, your parent just left. And it's not just mothers, it's fathers. It's who, their favorite grandfather, you know, who's always been good to you, whatever. When they leave, it literally shakes the very foundations of yourself. Everything blows up, but also the world becomes very scary because your protector is now gone. Okay. And so you become scared. And so, and you also feel when the parent, in this case of this guest, didn't come back, didn't come back, didn't come back. And so the girl started feeling, the little girl started feeling insignificant. I'm not enough to keep mommy here. I'm not important enough for mommy to want to stay. Well, guess what a little child's brain does? It buys those. It embeds those messages. That becomes a reality. Something must be wrong with me. I'm no good. See, I'm not good enough. And I don't matter. I don't matter to mommy. Mommy's gone. I don't matter. This was literally one of our guests. We just taped it an hour ago, two hours ago, whatever it was right? And those messages press into the wet cement of that child's soul and that cement hardens. And so that message of I'm insignificant and also the world is scary and I need somebody, I need companionship. I I'm terrified of being alone because all my feelings of, of insignificance and all my feelings of fear rise up inside of me. So I need someone. I'll do anything. I just have to have someone here. It's not just, I, gee, I like companionship. I can't be alone. It's too terrifying. Well, what kind of relationships do you think that person is getting going to get into when they become 14 years old and a boy comes along that gives that little girl, you know, that teen girl a little bit of love? She's like, oh, my God, I can't let go of him. I'll give you anything. I'll do anything. Don't leave me. Don't leave me. Don't leave me. She may not actually say that. Or in some cases, teens being teens, she may actually say that because she's never had love before. And now she's got someone voluntarily giving her love, confirming her worth when all of her life growing up, 
she had messages implanted saying she doesn't have worth. What kind of uh, relationships do you think that kid is going to have when she becomes an adult? She's going to pick things that are familiar. She's going to pick relationships where she is minimized and she'll be okay feeling insignificant. And she will do everything she can to try to get love because I need you to stay. Because if you stay, I feel like I matter, like I'm enough, like I'm wantable, like I matter. So yes, if she gets into multiple relationships, and this particular guest did, if she gets into multiple relationships that are all similar insofar as she's treated as insignificant and she's treated like shit, maybe she gets cheated on repeatedly or maybe her money gets stolen repeatedly or she gives so much and the person just takes and takes and takes and takes and she gets in those relationships repeatedly, is it her fault? Is there something wrong with her, quote unquote? I mean, she's the one common denominator in all those relationships. Well, the callous person or the fool would say, of course, it's her fault. She's an adult. Fucking, you know, choose otherwise. And that's the dumbest shit ever. That's the argument of people who are truly fucking naive to life, naive to the power of parental imprinting. Because what we see with this girl, now an adult, choosing these relationships is she was conditioned to believe that she's insignificant, conditioned to believe that this is what love is. That, that was her normal growing up. I'm insignificant. I'm treated as insignificant. I'm doing everything from the, for the other person just to get a little bit of love in return. She was conditioned. Is she the body, the shell going in, in all these relationships? Yes. But is it actually her? No, she didn't come out of the womb believing she sucked and she was insignificant and didn't matter and wasn't good enough. She was conditioned to believe that. So bottom line is this, are you the common denominator in all of this? No, your conditioning is the common denominator choosing all of this, which is why I'm constantly telling you guys, you got to go into all this shit. You got to heal all this shit. You got to heal that shit because you are compensating for that or that stuff is directly driving you to act the way you're acting and make the choices you are making. I want to thank you all so much for tuning in to the Badass Counseling Show, this lightning round. It's always great. It's always such a challenge. You guys have such rich questions, and I hope I was able to offer, shed a bit of light, and uh, maybe give you some new insights. I really encourage you to continue to go deep, continue to go into your trauma, continue to decharge those memories that have the emotional charges that are, that, uh, are the things inside of you that get triggered I really encourage you to do so. And for those of you out there that are therapists and counselors and clergy and school counselors and prison counselors and so forth, anybody engaged in the counseling of others in therapy and so forth, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your work. I want to thank you for your dedication in all of the hard shit, the hard slog. And I want to encourage you especially because we need you. The world needs more of you encourage you to continue to do the work on yourself. Keep cleaning out your love cup. Keep purging the shit. Keep tending to your own soul. Keep doing the things that breathe life into you, but especially keep going into your past to determine, to heal your own self because you become a much more powerful and insightful and deep and wise counselor the more you have actually lived and dealt with and addressed your own pain, your own fears, and your own bullshit beliefs you've been taught about yourself. Thank you so much to all the mental health workers, to all the soul workers, all the spiritual workers, all the people dealing with people's insides because that's where the real rubber hits the road. That's the real shit of life. Thanks, you guys, so much for tuning in to the Badass Counseling Show. On behalf of Rob and KC and the rest of the crew here, well, I guess the rest of the crew is 
Carly the Studio Cat, who is presently uh, sitting on one of our mixing boards over there, um, napping. <laughs> no, Rob, she's napping. That wasn't her. I don't argue with her. <laughs> uh, on behalf of the whole team here, thank you so much for tuning in to another uh, episode of the Badass Counseling Show Lightning Round, and have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day. Have a kick-ass day.